Good morning. This morning we're reading from Genesis chapter 19, 1 through 38. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out groping for the door, were themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord, Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and their firstborn went in and lay with their father. He did not know what she, when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Their firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. If you are visiting with us today, (laughs) I'm really glad you're here. I would imagine that if I were to visit a church for the first time on a day that this was read and preached, I would wonder, what, what's the agenda of this church? But I'm really glad you're here. We are actually walking through most of the book of Genesis as a church. We're tracing God's promises, his amazing salvation, his plan of salvation to all of humanity, first declared and proclaimed and preserved through one family, Abraham and Sarah. And, and their descending generations after them. But Abraham had a nephew named Lot. And the narrator of Genesis at this point is focusing on Lot and his family and their legacy. And we've been getting small traces, kind of plot development, character development throughout Genesis regarding Lot and the place where he had chosen to live, Sodom. So one... One morning early, Abraham wakes up and he hurries out and he goes to a place, a high point where he is able to look out towards the southeast into the plains, uh, the Dead Sea Valley. And what he saw was billowing up, smoke clouds billowing up from where the cities of the plain had once been, Sodom, Gomorrah, other small cities. Remember, on September 11th, 2001, how for days, uh, for weeks actually, Dad on the tugboat was was around Manhattan, and he had pictures a week after September 11th of, of the billowing smoke that was still coming up from ground zero. So imagine Abraham looking out and seeing in the distance clouds of billowing smoke from where Sodom and the surrounding cities just the night before had been. The Lord had told Abraham the night before that he would spare the entire place if just 10 righteous people were found in it. It turns out in the end, there was barely one righteous person. So what is Genesis 19 all about? 
because in, in cultural discussions, in contemporary discussions about sexuality, Genesis 19 is brought up quite often. Is Genesis 19 about homosexuality? In a way, yes, it is. And in a way, it's not. Yes and no. What I mean by no is, that's not the big picture. That's not ultimately, fundamentally, what's going on in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is about human depravity. About the accumulative effects of depravity, of human brokenness upon a culture, upon families, and upon individuals. Genesis 19 is about human depravity and a holy God. So I'm really not going to say much at all about homosexuality from Genesis 19. Because that's not the focus. That's not the big picture. Now, some of you may be wondering where I'm coming from with homosexuality. I believe the scriptures in plenty places, you wouldn't go here, you would go other places, are very clear. It's outside of God's plan for sexuality. It's sexual deviancy and sexual brokenness, um, I have to admit. But today, I want to talk to you about human depravity and God's holiness. Because that's what we discover in Genesis 19. And actually, if you follow the God of the Bible, if you worship the God of the Bible, uh, as Abraham did by faith, if you're walking with this God, what you discover is that God calls his people to be different. God calls his people to be different than the world. At the same time, remembering... We're not that different. And I want to talk to you about the problem with, this, with Sodom and the problem with Lot. And interestingly, interestingly enough, the problem with Jesus. The problem with Sodom, the problem with Lot, and the problem with Jesus. Now, the problem with Sodom is that it had become a community without a conscience. It is a culture Without a conscience. And the narrator gives us a very early clue to Sodom's depravity right in the first few verses. So the two angels sent from God, now they appear to be just men. But the two angels, if you read back in Genesis 19, you'll, you'll get caught up with us. The two angels were sent by God appearing as men. They show up in the city and Lot notices them and quickly comes up to them and urges them to spend the night at his place. And in verse 2, it says, he actually says to them, you can stay with me and I quote, rise up early and go. Now Lot's saying to them, hey, come stay with me and you can get up early and leave. And they say, no, we're fine. We're going to camp out. You know, we're, we're kind of backpacking across the Middle East and we're just going to camp out in, in the village square. You know, we can't find an open youth hostel, so we'll just, you know, camp out in the middle of everything and, and you know, we'll be fine, thanks. And, and Lot says, no, not really. Because Lot's thinking, that's a bad idea. If they're going to camp out in the middle of the city, they might as well have a sign that says, we're tourists, come and take our wallets. He knows that far much worse things than that can happen to them. And so he says in verse 3, well, actually, the narrator says in verse 3, he pressed them strongly. Right? So he's saying, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Come home with me. You can get up early in the morning and leave. Now, why would he say that? Because he knows what could happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. You get, uh, you get a display of Sodom's depravity. We're told the men of Sodom, both young and old, to the last man, 
uh, come knocking on Lot's door and say, hey, we're interested in your guests. Let us at them. Now, that we may know them, it, it means they want to be abusive. They want to abuse these guys. Right? And um, actually, the Hebrew expression here, boy, uh, uh, the men of Sodom, both young and old, young, the word young, it, it meant boys also. So this was the custom. This is what people did in Sodom. So, so guys, instead of taking their sons and nephews out on, on camping trips and, and, and to go to museums and go to restaurants, they took them out on same-sex gang rapes. That's what the narrator's telling us. It had become a culture that was completely broken, a culture with a broken conscience. And so God's two witnesses, the angels, decide, okay, that's enough. We've come. We've seen. We're going to light the place up. Now, if you think that's harsh, read Genesis chapter 18. Because you'll remember, if you were here last week, in Genesis chapter 18, God told Abraham, um, actually, I'll show you. Genesis 18, verse 20, God said to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God sends in agreement, frankly, with Old Testament law. He, ascend, he sends out two witnesses to confirm whether the guilt uh, was viable or not. So after patient reasoning and investigation, God was not quick to anger, nonetheless holds Sodom accountable. But their sexual depravity as a culture was not the only cause of their destruction. This is important to realize. Many, many, many centuries later, the Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, would share further insight into why Sodom and the surrounding cities were destroyed. Through Ezekiel, God said, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So not only sexual perversion, but social injustice was taking place. Social injustice, sexual perversion were symptoms, were equal symptoms of a deeper problem. You see it in Ezekiel, a deeper problem. There was abundance in their culture and their abundance led to pride. And their pride led to what pride typically leads to, apathy. And their apathy led to neglect. And there were many, there were, there were different symptoms of their neglect. There was moral neglect. They neglected what was true and what was good so that they couldn't discern right from wrong. Hence their sexual perversion. But they also neglected justice and wouldn't take care of the poor and needy among them. So pride was Sodom's problem and it was manifested in various ways. And of course, we could trace similar progressions in society, similar patterns throughout human history. Where pride led to apathy, which led to neglect, which led to abuse. 
But the reason I asked our dear sister Cynthia to read all of Genesis 19 was because Sodom is not the only depravity that we see. The problem with Lot was that he had become a bit too much like Sodom. In a progression of decisions that Lot had made, he becomes tragically entangled with Sodom. Lot and his family. If you go back in Genesis to Genesis 13, you might remember uh, that when Abraham and Lot decided that the land wasn't big enough to sustain the both of them and their growing wealth and possessions and servants, Lot looked out towards Sodom. And he admired Sodom. And then we find out that he pitched his tent outside of Sodom. By Genesis 14, we learned that Lot was finally living inside of Sodom. Actually, he had to be rescued. Uh, Abraham had to rescue. It was probably because of Lot living in Sodom uh, that Abraham uh, conducted a military campaign uh, to free uh, the people of that part of the Middle East. But by Genesis chapter 19, we're told in verse 1 that Lot is sitting in the gate of the city. Now, that's significant because in these little ancient cities, leaders would sit in the gate of the city by the wall. They would sit there to adjudicate cases between citizens of the town. So if we're told, we're told that Lot is sitting in the gate of of the city, the ancient reader would have realized, ah, by now, Lot is either a leader of the city or he's very much entangled in the city's affairs. So Lot and his family, through this progression, right, they looked toward it admiringly. They camped outside of it. They moved into it. And now Lot is sitting at the gate, perhaps as a leader of the city, they become entangled in Sodom. They become influenced by Sodom so much that they really can't leave Sodom, can they? Because in verse 16, we're told that Lot lingered. Angels say, we're going to light this place up. You, anybody that you know, get out. And we're told, but he lingered. As the angels had to drag him and his wife and their daughters out of the city. And then even then, he, he pleads with the angels, can't I just stay in this little small town just outside of Sodom? Zoar means little or small. Right, so so the, influence on, uh, the influence of the place on Lot is so great that even in escaping, he really didn't want to go all that far. It's like saying, I still want my little private Sodom for myself. Can I just leave and, and go out just a little bit? Just a little way outside? And a similar hesitancy ended up killing his wife, who we're told looked back. And so she loved the town. She loved her life there so much that she had a hard time leaving. You could understand that. But in the process, the burning, the burning elements, the bitumen, the, the petroleum, the natural gas, the salt, the region was rich with all of this. Whatever God did to light everything up, it was all lit up. And looking back and hesitating and not fleeing with her husband away from the place. She was consumed as the burning elements took her over. And the city's conscience, although the city's conscience was broken sexually, so was theirs. 
Think about what Lot suggests to the men of the town. (laughs) He's scandalized by the idea that his guests would be... uh, would be taken advantage of by the men of the town. And so what is his bright, judicious alternative? Here, take my virgin daughters. I don't know what's worse. Actually, his virgin daughters were the ones who later on in the account did something even more unspeakable with their father. I mean, think about it. They, so apparently they were engaged to be married. Because Lot tried to warn his sons-in-law to get up and get out. They thought he was joking with them, so they didn't move. So apparently, he was a joke to them. Uh, So now they move, they leave, they go to Zoar. The passage tells us that Lot was afraid to stay in Zoar. So whatever conflict he had in Sodom, it followed him to Zoar. And because he was afraid to live there even, he ended up living in his older years in a cave. On his own with his two unmarried daughters who basically take matters into their own hands and seduce their father and get pregnant by their father. And then those two boys became the father, the the products of, of that incestuous relationship, Moab and Ammon, they become the fathers of two nations who centuries later would, would pester and provoke Abraham's descendants whose sexual depravity and idolatrous uh, religious depravity would mimic the situation in Sodom. You can read about it in the book of Numbers. So Lot's family like Sodom, and then they moved into Sodom, and then they loved Sodom. That's typically the progression. We're attracted by the world. We get close to the world. And we learn to love the world. You know, I think the problem with us is that we've become a bit too much like Lot. Lot's problem was he had become too much like Sodom. And I think the problem, the problem we have to face is we need to ask ourselves, especially if we're Christians, have we become too much like Lot? Now, if you worship the God of the Bible, if you worship and serve and love Abraham's God, I am challenging you to be sober about Lot's own depravity. Now, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter calls Lot a righteous man, but man, is, is, is he a broken version of righteousness? Because <laughs> in so many ways, Lot turns out to be a failure. As a dad, as a husband, as a leader, he's a failure. Though he's counted as righteous and by the mercy of God, for the sake of Abraham who prayed for the city, Lot is rescued. But we have, to take, we have to take Lot's depravity seriously and sober up by it. And ask yourself this question. How is our culture influencing you? How is our society influencing your own sexuality? How is our society influencing how you think of money? What you think about money and how you spend your money and what you do with your money. How is our society influencing your politics? You don't think you're influenced politically by our society? Apart from what is good according to God's standards? Ask yourself, am I becoming a bit too much like the world around me? Ask yourself, 
How is the media in our society influencing the way I think about my world and the people around me and how I, how I deal with conflict and how I deal with people who are different than me or disagree with me? Ask yourself. Sober up. James Boyce wrote, Lot is an illustration of the worldly, half-hearted Christian. He had a knowledge of God and wanted fellowship with him, but he wanted the world too. And in the end, he lost almost everything he valued. And I really think that Lot is an illustration of me as a young man. I have to read about Lot's life and see myself there. And say, say Brian, you look too much like the world in which you live. Lot is me as a young Christian, as a young man calling myself a Christian, and yet as a young man whose, whose ambition w closely mimicked the self-centered ideas of, of getting successful and famous, the people who, all the musicians who surrounded me. I, my ambitions were just like theirs, although I called myself a Christian. My sexuality was broken too. As my habits, as my desires, mimicked the habits and desires of the people all around me. And yet the Apostle Paul tells Christians, those who believe in this God of Abraham, in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed by Sodom, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It doesn't matter how broken your conscience has become because you live in this world, friend. The God of the Bible can redeem your conscience. The God of the Bible can take somebody who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, who neglects all that is good, all that is right, all that is pure, all that is just, or who is confused and redeem your conscience so that as the Holy Spirit living in you renews your mind, you are able finally to discern what is God's will, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect according to him. So sober up about Lot's depravity. And be careful, though. Be careful not to condemn our society of the same sins or similar sins that we commit. And that's a big lesson we have to learn from Lot. Be careful not to condemn our society while we still struggle with similar types of depravity. Now, let's talk again about sexual brokenness. Uh, you know, maybe... Maybe for most of us, maybe for most of the people in this room today, maybe your sexual brokenness doesn't manifest itself in the same manner as our neighbors and friends in the LGBTQ community. But sexual brokenness does exist in the church and, within, and among confessing Christians. We also abuse pornography and are addicted to it. There is also sexual abuse and misconduct within Christian families. Some of your children and grandchildren and some of your friends are living together, sexually active, co cohabitating with one another, not married, having no intention of marrying, having no intention of being serious with one another. It's happening all around us, isn't it? So instead of, instead of just focusing on how the world needs to change, maybe we need to pray, we need to change. I think that's why sometimes Christians in our society are seen as a joke. 
Remember Lot's sons-in-laws? He said, come on, get out of here. We got to go. They thought he was joking. Lot was a joke to his sons-in-law. And sometimes I think in our society, now I'm talking specifically to Christians, I think the world looks at us as a joke because we're condemning them for the same sins that we're committing. And they know. They read the statistics. They know who we are. They watch us live our lives. We're not innocent. And it looks ridiculous when you preach at people when your hands are covered also. So yes, pray for the world. Pray that the society repents. But first, we got to pray that we, that the ones we love would, would repent. Rather than judge the world, let's judge ourselves. I think of how David prayed at the end of Psalm 139. He was talking about the wicked people who hate his God. But then he holds himself in check and he says, hold on now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wickedness in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. I, we got to start here inside. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians put it this way. 1 Corinthians 5. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And wasn't Sodom's example right to Paul's point? So if you are following the God of the Bible. We need to think this way, that we ought to avoid worldliness and avoid self-righteousness at the same time. We must avoid being worldly and we must avoid being self-righteous. Now, if you don't follow the God of the Bible, and again, I'm really glad that you're with us. If you don't follow this God... I'm asking you to be sober also. I'm asking you to sober up, not so much about Lot's depravity, but about Sodom's depravity. A greater day of reckoning is coming. A day of reckoning is coming that will make Sodom and Gomorrah and their day of accountability look like a nursery school program. And will you escape that day of reckoning? Or... Will you be consumed by God's inescapable justice? I pray that you will not be. I pray that you will see as I have seen that God will save any sinner who trusts him. And that's me. My prayer is rather than be consumed by his justice and wrath, you will be spared by his compassion and his mercy. And that brings me to the problem with Jesus. Jesus had a problem. At least people thought he had a problem. The religious elite, the religious establishment during Jesus' day in Jerusalem thought he had a problem because he had a reputation for hanging out with the people they would call sinners. Jesus developed a reputation and was criticized for it for hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Back then, tax collector meant a, a really creepy person. And Jesus developed a reputation for eating with people like this and associating himself with people like this. They, they kind of flocked to him. They liked being around them. It didn't seem to bother him to associate with them. He would even say things like, you know, I came to heal the sick. People who think they're well are not going to ask for a doctor. But the people who know they're sick, they'll ask for help. And that's why I'm here. He would say things like that. But here's what's interesting about Jesus. He had a way of associating with people without succumbing to their way of life. 
Jesus was able to associate with without succumbing to their way of thinking and how they lived. He had no problem saying to somebody, something bad is going to happen to you if you don't stop sinning. And at the same time, freely embrace that person and tell them your sins are forgiven. You and I don't operate that way. We very rarely have the ability to associate with folks and yet not succumb to their way of living and their way of thinking. What we quite often do is either, either isolate ourselves from the people in the world. Now, again, I'm speaking directly to Christians. We either isolate ourselves from the world or we assimilate with the world. Either in fear or a sense of self-righteousness, we isolate ourselves from our culture. This has been the reputation and the legacy of fundamentalism in the American church. To isolate out of fear and self-righteousness. But the other is possible too, isn't it? To assimilate with the world. To just, like Lot and his family, become so much like the world that there is no difference between the world. That the world actually laughs at us. This has been the reputation and legacy of mainline Christianity in American culture. We either isolate or we assimilate. And you know what? We're the ones, that, we're the ones whose lives are destroyed by that. Jesus didn't do that. He balanced. He balanced grace with truth. God's grace. God's grace is needed so that we do not isolate ourselves. But God's truth is needed so that we do not commit the sin of assimilation. But Jesus, John's gospel tells us, was full of grace and truth. And have you, some of you who are pretty familiar with the Bible, have you put this together yet? Lot's two sons, his sons by incest. One of them was called Moab, right? So Moab became the father of the Moabites. It was centuries later that a Moabite woman named Ruth, who became a refugee, but she had married into a Hebrew family, into an Israelite family. Well, Ruth became the great-grandmother of David the king. Now, you know David the king is the great ancestor of Jesus, the true king, the Messiah. And so you see that incest was written into Jesus' family line. That is really significant. You see that Jesus is willing to associate himself with depraved people? Jesus was fully God so that he was not tainted by sin like you and I are. But he was fully human. And Jesus, as a human being, had incest in his family's line. Because he was willing to associate with people who were depraved without becoming depraved himself and without condemning others. It was in John 3 that he said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did what Lot couldn't do. And when you and I, even on our best days, really struggle to do, he was in the world, but never of it. That's what Lot failed to do. 
that's, you know, if we could each share our story with one another and it would be one failure after another of how we have not been able to perfectly live in the world and not of the world. Some of us have either been completely living, have either been of the world, assimilated, look just like the world, or some of us have, have lived outside of the world because we're afraid of assimilating or because we're, we're too self-righteous and look down on, on the depravity, not realizing we're depraved ourselves. Uh, but, but Jesus walked that line perfectly. He was in the world, but not of it. And he prayed to his heavenly father the night before he was betrayed and executed. He said, Father, I pray that the people who follow me, that my disciples and those who hear of my salvation through them would be in the world and not of it. That's Christ's desire. Where Lot failed, Christ succeeded. And through Jesus, with his Holy Spirit living in you, you now have the power to do exactly what he prayed you would be able to do, to live in the world but not be of the world. And so it remains true that this gospel, the idea that Jesus became a sinner, that he took all the depravity, all the corruption, all the injustice, even the incest in his own family's line. He took all of it and he nailed it with himself to the cross. And he rose from the dead, making it possible for you and I and people like Lot to receive mercy, even if we don't deserve it because we've, we've, we've lived a double life. So the gospel calls us to be different, but always admitting always remembering, always confessing we're not much different like the world. It's by God's grace that we have been saved. And in the power of God's grace, we may now live differently. Not perfectly, but differently. In the world, but not of the world. So praise God, praise the Lord today as we sing the last song. Let's rejoice that Jesus is a humble, patient Savior who associates with depraved people. And if you've been paying attention, you will say, yeah, I'm one of the depraved people. But he associates with us. And just like Lot, he drags us out. He drags us out, even against our own will. Even in our own blindness, we love our own little private Sodoms. But because he loves us and because he's strong to save, he grabs us and he takes us under his arms and he gets us out of there before we even know what's happened. So, this, uh, this is the God that Abraham is coming to know and trust. And if you belong to this God, then keep praying for our world as Abraham was learning to do. You have no idea whom God will save by his mercy because you have asked God to do it. And if you don't belong to this God, it is not too late. His justice is good and it's sure and it's coming. But his grace and his mercy, his compassion, his fatherly love is why most of the people in this room are sitting here today. And I challenge you to test God to see whether he is as loving and compassionate as he is just and righteous. And you will find that he is. Let's pray.
Our Father, we repeat the words of John Newton, who said, I was a great sinner, but Jesus was a great Savior. Father, thank you for this disturbing uh, but eye-opening witness of Lot and his family and Sodom. And Lord, we ask uh, that you would teach us uh, to not be of the world, but give us the love and the patience to remain in it, uh, that people would see our good deeds as a chosen royal people uh, and praise you because they do see some things different in us, but I pray that what they see as different would be Jesus, the the aroma of Jesus. And for those who would receive Jesus, uh, Lord, draw them to us and draw us to them that we may serve and love them in his name. Amen.